So Michelle Price, you're the Director of Community Engagement at the Ohio Suicide uh, Prevention Foundation. Um, how long have you been in this role? Um, actually, just over a year. I started April 1st of 2019. Okay, so you've had your one-year anniversary already. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Um, so looking at your profile, I saw that you've kind of been working in the suicide prevention field for like a decade now. Oh, my God. Yeah, um, almost. It's okay. uh, in um, late 2011. And I started as a suicide prevention educator in my home county of Delaware. And I did um, school programming um, for suicide prevention in all the schools in a two-county area. Um, I then ended up managing that program. And then I ended up at OSPF. Hey, wow. Um, so when I was talking to Derek Longmire in a previous episode um, with the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio, I always find it really interesting how uh, you guys at the top of uh, the prevention field, how you came into this role. Um, like, did you know going into college, this is what I wanted to do. And for him, he's known since middle school. So how did you come to know you wanted to be in prevention? My story is probably going to be the exact opposite of Derek's. <laughs> so I had no idea that I was going to fall into the prevention field. I went to college and got a degree in comparative religion because I wanted to learn about world cultures and religion had always fascinated me because it's such an important part of people's lives. So um, my initial plan would have been to become like a PhD and teach at a college and be a talking head on the History Channel or something, but um, academia just didn't agree with me. So um, I was actually, I had just graduated from college and my mom was serving on our local suicide prevention coalition. Um, she was a police officer here in Delaware. And she said, hey, there's this organization and they're gonna start going into the schools and teaching about suicide prevention. And the reason she had mentioned it is because I have a, my personal experience with um, depression, anxiety, with suicide ideation, and I've moved through it. I still struggle with it, but I, you know, it's something I'm familiar with. And she thought that my compassion and my empathy combined with my personal experience would be a great way to reach out to kids. And so I applied and I got the job. And even then I wasn't quite sure if prevention was where I wanted to stay. But especially once I started to manage the program, <clears throat> once I started to manage that program is when I was like, this is where I want to stay. And I didn't know exactly where I I would be able to go because I just only really experienced prevention at this very local level. I wasn't aware of the larger prevention field. And, um, you know, within about a year before I started at OSPF, I started to become more and more aware of that field and the state entities that are doing all that work. And then I was like, okay, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So it was a slow progression, but um, it's a personal passion of mine. And now it's a professional passion of mine. And you said that your mom, she was a, was it a school resource officer? Was it a police officer? She had been um, an on-duty police officer for years, but then she transitioned to be the community relations officer. Okay. So that's what she was doing. Okay, interesting. And mm -hmm. I remember the first thing I did, or the first conference I went to when I started my job with Envision Partnerships, was 
the conference up at OSPF. Oh, and wow. yeah, yeah, that was that was my my first big conference. I'd never gone to one before, and it was just I was like, wow, like this is definitely I'm I'm in the right place. And yeah. uh, you know, you and Tony are just amazing. And we had that option to go to a prep uh, one of the press conferences, and you guys got buses for all of us, and yeah, we bust on over there. And um, I remember you. Uh, went up to the stand and you started talking about your own personal experience. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us standing there had no idea um, that you, you know, you have been through this um, and you have a personal relationship with it. So having that personal experience in a field as sensitive as this, do you believe that's been a strength for you? I do. I think that when you're talking to anybody in the public, they know if you're just blowing air, you know, you can know a lot about something academically speaking, but until you've experienced it, I still think that there's an element of connectedness that you don't have with your audience. But if you've experienced it, you'll touch somebody in their heart in a way that's different than somebody who has just, um, uh, you know, an academic knowledge of it or, um, a book knowledge of depression or suicide or prevention and things like that. And for me, I feel like it helps me be more of an authentic presenter and connect to people in a more personal way. So they're not coming up to me after a presentation and asking me questions about what I presented on. They're usually coming up to me and saying, wow, I've experienced this. And sometimes I'll sprinkle tiny bits of my story throughout my presentation and they'll say, I never would have known, just like you said, I never would have known that you experienced this and knowing that someone else struggles, but can still get up here and talk like this, it gives me hope. And so for me, I find it a strength, but I do think that, um, if you are in this field and you struggle with mental illness or, um, especially suicidal ideation, you just need to be as aware of yourself as possible. So, you know, when you need to take a step back. Um, like my Tony knows, my, my coworkers know that I struggle. And if I start to get into a, a headspace where I feel like I'm falling into a, a deeper depression, or if I've thought about suicide, I let them know because I want that. I want to be transparent, but I also want them to understand why I might not be functioning at my highest at that moment. And I think that people appreciate that transparency and that authenticity. And I think you're also surrounded by people that understand more than most organizations would. Yeah. Um, and if there's one thing that I think can be, and not in my particular case um, with the people around me, but I know that the first time I ever had to call um, a hotline for myself, it was years ago when Robin Williams died by suicide. And I was having a really hard time personally, and that just kind of enhanced what I was going through. Um, I felt a lot of shame and I felt a lot of like, I should know better. I shouldn't be feeling like this. I should have my stuff together. Why am I calling a crisis line? I should know. You know what I mean? There was just a lot of this. You do this for a living. You should be better, but that's not true. Um, all of us who struggle with any kind of mental illness, I mean, it's a mental illness. You don't always have complete control over it. And it's okay to struggle and reaching out was the smartest thing I could have done. And um, I think that sometimes as people in the field, we're 
afraid to tell people that we're struggling because people might succumb to the stigma that we're trying to eradicate anyway. We're just so afraid of that stigma because it's still so permissive in our culture. So um, it is still a barrier. It's something I have to mentally fight against. But um, but yeah, it does it does still kind of peek its head in every once in a while. When you were talking about Robin Williams there, um, I noticed you used the terminology die by suicide. And terminology is something that I think a lot of prevention agencies are starting to talk about. Um, why, why use the term die by suicide and how are you kind of changing the culture uh, of, of suicide to, to say that rather than other things? Well, um, especially when we're in the public sphere, you know, on um, videos like this or doing uh, presentations or speeches or, you know, putting out materials, you really want to try to use language like. <laughs> you can keep it in. I don't think you want to do it. In. Okay. <laughs> it's staying in. So you want to use language like died by suicide or that someone had taken their life, someone killed themselves because that is exactly what happened. When you use words like commit, it implies crime. It implies um, all of these different things like sin and shame. And that's not a story that we want to push out there. We want people to know that even if you're thinking about suicide, if you've thought about suicide, if you've attempted, but you're still with us, there's no shame in that. And so we really try to avoid using words like commit. But I think that it's important to know too that if I'm speaking to somebody who lost their loved one to suicide and they say, you know, so-and-so committed suicide, I'm not going to correct them in that moment. Mm -hmm. That's not appropriate. And, you know, I'm not just going to say, oh, no, no, we don't say that. Because some people, some people are okay with that terminology. but by and large, we want to use terminology like died by suicide, um, took their own life, or someone killed themselves to avoid that stigma. So um, I assume you guys deal with that quite a bit. When you're dealing with um, the media and say you have an article written about the work you do, sometimes you see that terminology thrown in there. Is, is there anything you do at that point? Or um, do you say, hey, in the future, so um, especially with media like news stations or newspapers and things like that, um, we do try to send them the recommendations that have been laid out on how to report responsibly on suicide. And it goes beyond just using um, the correct wording. I mean, it's about how you um, talk about the story. It's about not uh, describing things in any kind of detail, trying really hard or completely omitting the means in which the person died by because that's not what's important. What's important is that somebody had lost their life to a mental illness that they had been struggling with. Uh, we try to send out that stuff um, to people, but I will tell you a funny story. I was watching local news um, months ago. I don't remember what station, but somebody had died by suicide and they had said somebody died by suicide. They used those words. And I was with my family at the time and I went, Ooh! And I got so excited, which is not the response you want to have to a story like that. But the reason right. I'm so excited is because the reporter 
used the correct language. And that is so important. And so I think that slowly but surely we are breaking down that barrier and um, media are starting to use the correct wording. Okay. And um, on your website, I, I haven't checked myself. Is there any, um, any page or anywhere people can go to learn a little bit more about that terminology and kind of the sensitivity around writing about this topic or talking about it? Um, right now, there's not anything in particular. We're in the process of redoing our website okay. for more information, but there is a really great um, responsible messaging um, document that was written by uh, John Ackerman from Nationwide Children's Hospital here in okay. Ohio, along with people from the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, um, Franklin County Lost, I mean, all these different organizations in Ohio and it's actually published through the American Association of Suicidology. Um, so that's something that I can get to you if you'd like, or we can um, post a link to that so that people can access it. Yeah, we'd love to post some resources along with the episode so people can find that. And I think it'd be really helpful. Yeah, that one's really great. And then we did a webinar recently on responsible messaging with John Ackerman and myself, and I can always send a link to that as well. Is it still available? Yeah, we have a website okay. or a webinar archive on our website now. Okay. So, um, we have things that are kind of kept back so you can watch them and download the materials mentioned in the website or the, in the webinar. So that's cool. Okay. We'd love to link to that too. That would be great. Yeah, I'll send those to you after. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Um, all right. So um, we've talked about your background, um, terminology, some of the challenges that come uh, with the job. So as the director of community engagement um, at OSPF, what does this look like and what are the responsibilities that you have? So walk us through like a typical day for you. There is no typical day. <laughs> That's well, what everyone keeps saying. I, I think that sometimes I crave that structure, but other times when I'm bound to that structure, I get, you know, ants in my pants and just move around. So um, I don't really have it every day. Um, my position is brand new. We created it um, out of necessity. We were hearing from coalitions across the state that they needed someone to connect with, someone to work with, someone to bring them together. And so we created this position and we shifted some responsibilities around at the organization. So my job was born. And most of what I do, the heart of what I do, is directly working with local suicide prevention coalitions across the state helping them build capacity, helping them connect, being the person that does bring them together, provides them with resources, and is the voice for coalition um, people when we're having these bigger state conversations. Because I think when people um, are in higher level positions, it's very easy. It's not intentional, but it's very easy for them to kind of forget that um, local view. And so it's my job to listen to what different counties around the state have to say and then bring that voice to the state leaders. And that's no easy job because you are just always, you know, reaching out, uh, contact, the level of communication that you have with everyone. I don't, I, not just that anyone can do that job and you, um, you just do a great job. Kristen Smith, our suicide prevention coordinator here at Admission Partnerships, she uh, leads the Butler County Suicide Prevention Coalition, and she's always Michelle this, Michelle that, and we just, our coalition and so many others are so 
are so glad to have someone that can kind of lead the way uh, navigating what resources can we use, where do we go from here. And we're especially excited for that new grant um, that, that was uh, given out. So could you talk about the recent grant and what that means for all the coalitions that are involved? Yeah, so <clears throat> as part of my position, I had mentioned that we want to build capacity for suicide prevention coalitions across the state. We have some coalitions in this state that are just on point. They could probably just run themselves and just be fine. But then there are others that are really struggling and some that are just volunteer based. They have no funding. And so we want to bring everybody up to a level where we all have a basic foundation of prevention knowledge, how to run a coalition, how to engage with your community, et cetera. And so we came up with this initiative called the Strengthening and Sustaining Ohio's Suicide Prevention Coalitions Initiative. And unfortunately, that doesn't make a beautiful acronym. It's like, <laughs> not very, doesn't really flow off the tongue. But that initiative is made to um, get, we have um, 17 coalitions right now, and Butler County is definitely one of them um, involved in this. And um, we are working with them to do community readiness assessments to really look into their coalition and what they're capable of now and what they could be capable of in the future and finding out what your own personal strengths are as a coalition member and how you can use that to better um, fuel the efforts of your coalition. So we are working with um, Ohio University and the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services to put that on. And it's been extended a little bit in a very strange way because of um, the quarantine that we're all in and um, we're doing a lot more things virtually. So it's kind of changed since we started at the beginning of the year. But this is something that we want to offer annually to coalitions um, because we have 88 counties. I believe 73 of them are currently covered by a coalition. Um, some of them are one coalition for multiple counties, uh, but most counties are just one coalition per county. Um, and then we want to try to get coalitions in those other counties, too, that don't have anything. Um, but eventually, we'd like everyone to go through this, this process, receive this grant money, and, you know, um, enhance their capacity at the local level so that they can really make a difference with their communities. And what does... Um what does success look like at the end of this um, for all the coalitions? Ooh. <laughs> I think success is going to vary for each coalition. We have some coalitions that are very well established. Um, and so I think their kind of success is going to look different than a coalition that might be restarting and still wants to work on writing a brand new strategic plan and um, who are trying to get more people to sit at the table. Um, so I think it's hard to really measure the success, but really it's about coming out of this process with skills that you didn't have before that, again, can enhance that work that you're doing in your community. So you're not just kind of pulling prevention out of a bag and throwing it against the wall and hoping that it sticks. You're doing prevention in a very systematic, well-thought-out way. Um, and making sure that your community is even ready to hear that message. Because sometimes we, we try, we work our butts off behind the scenes, but our communities are just like, mm -mm, don't want to listen to you. And 
Um, that's a part of prevention is making sure that we're putting out messages that our community is ready to hear. So I think that that's really what success is going to look like, but it is going to look different for each coalition. Right, right. And um, something I've noticed right away, and it's not even the end of it, is just the networking um, that this has provided. You know, even though we've done some only just done virtual stuff lately, uh, we haven't been able to meet because of the stay at home order. Um, just just the email list has probably what like 50, 50 <laughs> plus people on it yeah <laughs> communicating back and forth that just want to do better and be better um, for their for their coalition and I know that our reach has grown at in Butler County um, people coming to our coalition meetings has grown and I think that you kind of tying us all together in this has expanded our reach um, and, you know, being able to say, oh, look what, like, their coalition's doing, look what their coalition's doing, has been really helpful. So um, it's exciting to see where else this goes. That is exactly why I do this. I can't tell you, like, from a personal experience standpoint, I used to run a coalition, and it can feel very isolating when you don't know what's going on around you. Like I said, I lived in this local prevention bubble for years. I didn't know that other people were doing similar things. I thought everybody else had their stuff together and I was the only one who didn't. But that's not true. That's not true in life too. That's a life lesson, not just a coalition lesson. <laughs> it's struggling and everybody needs help and that's okay. And to hear that um, just the simple networking is making a difference I mean, I have like these little proud mama moments sometimes when I'm doing this work. And I think that's one of them is when I hear stories like that. Um, because in addition to this initiative, which is bringing coalitions together, we also have something that's open to everybody. It doesn't involve any grant money. Um, it's called the Suicide Prevention Coalition Partnership. And that's just an opportunity to get everyone together. And everyone can share ideas. Everyone can talk about their struggles and just network. Um, and we also want to provide some additional training as well um, so that we can help build capacity in smaller ways. But, um, but yeah, that's amazing to hear. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. I'm excited to see it grow and hopefully other coalitions can join in um, the next time around. Uh, you said you were going to uh, offer the grant again? We'd love to. Um, yeah. Of course. It's going to depend on funding, especially now they're talking about possibly funding getting cut after all of the COVID stuff, and we're not sure how that's going to affect anyone um, on our end. But, um, but yeah, this is something that we would like to continue to do over the years until all coalitions have filled their capacity up to a point where, you know, they're self-sustaining, we can work together. Maybe we have some coalitions that are doing really well that can be mentors for others. I mean, my biggest... Um, mantra is what do you need as a coalition as a person what do you need and if I can give it to you then I'll give it to you if I can't I'll try to figure out how to make it happen or I'll at least continue to be the voice and tapping people on the shoulder saying excuse me excuse me why don't we have this yet people are asking for it. so um, that's yeah you're the advocate for all I try yeah you do a great job thank you now, um, what are your concerns during COVID, if any, in the stay-at-home order? How does it affect people's uh, well-being? And what are some things that they can do during this time? 
So I guess my concern is the isolation. Um, connectedness is one of the strongest protective factors when we're talking about suicide. And when people are physically isolated, I think that that connectedness starts to dwindle in some people. But there are also some folks who really are starting to feel like we're all strangely coming together even though we're apart. And so I think that it's really hit and miss with how people are feeling. I know I've struggled with um, staying at home. Um, I have a, a 22 month old son who I have to watch. He's not here today because I had to do an interview. Um, <laughs> but you know, he's usually running around. It's hard to get work done. My stress levels are a little higher than normal. And um, you know, some people are out of jobs. Some people don't have the money they used to. Some people don't have money at all. And let alone, if you do have the money, are you able to get the things that you need at the store? Because it's a little bit easier to find things these days, but it's still difficult. And it still brings like a tinge of sadness to me whenever I go to a store and I see that there's no toilet paper. I have plenty of toilet paper right now, but like, it's just like, it, there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry, a lot of unknown. And I think that's really what we have to worry about. But we can still connect. I have become so familiar with connecting this way with, with a camera on my phone. I do FaceTime with my family um, so that my son can see his grandma and his uncle. And um, my mom just had this like little happy hour with her brothers and sisters who live in Illinois and Iowa. They did that yesterday on an app where it was just all of them. There's seven of them, all of them on this app so that they can all just kind of have like this moment together. So I think connecting with people in ways that aren't traditional is key. Um, making sure that you get outside or if you're afraid to go outside, open your windows, get some sunlight into your house when it's warm. Um, today it's a little bit colder. We got a beautiful taste of the seventies the other day and then it's like, Oh yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think that things like that as cliche as it sounds is so important. And I have found that I feel so much better when I wake up, I take my shower, I put on my makeup, I put on regular clothes that I would wear to work, and I, I work from home. I don't just you know wear, sit around in my jammies all day because if I did, then I might start to feel more depressed. So I think it's just trying to do things like that that are going to be the most helpful. And also, and I know this is hard for people who are struggling with mental illness, try not to be afraid to ask for help. A lot of people who struggle, especially with depression, perceive themselves to be a burden on the people around them. And it's like, well, I'm not going to ask you to go grocery shopping for me. How, how selfish of me. And that's like your inner monologue, but it's not selfish. And there are people out there who are just chomping at the bit to help their, their friends and family. So don't be afraid. It's not shameful to ask for help. And there are definitely people out there who want to help you. So that's what I would say. Um, for kind of a way to manage this. But also the last thing, um, I think that we need to think beyond where we are right now. What is this going to look like after, and I don't even know how to say this is over because I feel like life, life isn't going to return exactly to the way it was. Our mindset is different. Things have changed, you know? Um, just our sense of self, our sense of community is different. So how do we move forward with that? How do we deal with this community trauma that a lot of people are experiencing after this? 
And there's fear of the economy um, going down or tanking or something like that. We don't have a lot of evidence about pandemics that show increased suicide rates, but there are um, studies that have shown that during an economic downturn, the suicide rates can increase. So we really need to focus not just on telling people the signs of suicide and telling them to get help, but we need to focus on things like the reason that people are stressed. So how do we help people get housing? How do we help people get the financial assistance that they need? How do we make people feel like it's safe to go outside again when it's okay to go outside again? How do we handle those things when this is all over? And if we prepare for that now, the transition will be a lot easier later. And I, I think you hit the nail on the head with it being hit or miss with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, we've been having, you know, I'm connecting with people like this. The only person I really see is my boyfriend and my dog. Yeah. But I have felt closer to my coworkers than I have when we're in the office. And most of them are school-based, so of course I never see them. Um, but we'll have check-ins once a week. And, you know, we ask everyone, how are you doing? Some people are not taking, taking it very well. They feel lonely. But, yeah. um, you know, I, I really enjoy working from home. And so for me, it's not, it's not as, as bad. Um, but I understand for other people, this is a lonely time. Um, my, my grand, my grandpa, you know, they're very at risk. So they're pulled up in their home and little things you can do with formats like this. I, I take her on walks with me. Uh, we'll FaceTime her and she's such a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, just little things like that. The phone works both ways. I know she's not going to say, Hey, can you send me a video of this? But taking the initiative and being, uh, thinking about how other people are feeling and, you know, some of those people that get lonely, some of those people yeah. that are, yeah, that are locked up at home. And get creative. I love that you're taking her on walks with you. That's such a good idea. And I'm, I know I've talked a lot about my personal experience, so I'm sorry to kind of drop another personal bomb, but right when this started, my father passed away and we were expecting it, but it was still very sad and it's still sad, but we couldn't have people over. People weren't dropping casseroles. People weren't, um, you know, we didn't have a service. We're going to have one later, hopefully in the summer, but maybe in October. Um, and, and that was really hard, but I had some friends who like one friend bought me a gift card to DoorDash so that I could order food, yeah. them sending me food. I had another friend who just said, um, I'm putting together a little bag and I'm going to leave it on your door. Don't worry about answering it. I'm just going to text you and tell you it's there. That way we don't have to worry about touching or um, feeling weird because we can't hug. And she just gave me like little instant macaronis and some granola bars for my son and coloring books for my son. And she made me some homemade broccoli and cheese soup. And yeah. so, I mean, somebody else had sent my mom like a, one of those edible arrangements. Oh, yeah. So think of ways that you can reach out like that. It doesn't have to be a grand gesture. Sometimes my neighbor knocked on my door the other day and apparently she has sensitive skin and she's like, Hey, this toilet paper doesn't work for me. Do you want it? And I'm like, Oh yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> like, this is like gold. <laughs> so, um, you know, I mean, even those little things where people are just like, here's this, here's a, you know, some, 
something that you might need, no matter how small it is, just reach out and be there for people. That is what we need to do. We had, and I'm sorry, I get so excited. Oh, you're fine. We had this idea, and I don't know if people would love to do this. I think we should, because we feel so isolated, is do some sort of like statewide, neighborhood-wide, like happiness hour is what we're calling it. And from like four to five, and especially on nice days, just like take your family out into your driveway or onto your stoop or your sidewalk and just sit there in some chairs, let your kids or your, you know, your animals run around or let your kids draw on um, the sidewalk with chalk and just have like some snacks and some popcorn and some drinks and, you know, just hang out. And if everybody came out of their houses at that time and did that and, you know, talked long distance and kept that physical distance apart, I think that's important. And I've heard a lot of this and I'm sorry if I'm, um, you know, really harping on this, but we use the word social distancing and in Ohio, we're really doing a good job. I mean, I know that there are some people who might not be following the rules, but we're doing a great job, but I don't like the term social distancing. I like the term physical distancing because socially we still need to be able to speak. We still need to be able to interact. But as long as we're keeping that physical distance and we're taking care of each other in that way, there's no need for us to be antisocial. We need to be with each other, but just in unique and different ways. You're, you're absolutely right. This, just because we're physically you know, distanced doesn't mean we're, we can't be socially connected. So uh, getting outside, doing everything that you can do, all the little stuff counts. Um, now, how have suicide rates in Ohio changed over the course of the past 10 years since you've basically been in this field? Uh, what are some trends you've noticed? Um, well, generally suicide is up. Um, we're seeing it go up by a few hundred pretty much every year. I think it's gone from somewhere around 1,100 or 1,200 when I started per year to um, the last time we had complete data, it was um, 2018, I think, and it was um, 1,836, so 1,800. Um, and so it's definitely increasing. Um, in Southeast Ohio, you're going to see a lot more uh, of the higher rated states. Um, and rate is based on population. So that's important to note. Um, I think that it's still important to focus everywhere in the state, but Southeast Ohio definitely struggles more with even just physical isolation, easier access to means, um, the, you know, a culture of stigma that's might a little bit um, stronger than maybe somewhere in, um, else in Ohio. So they're really struggling down there. Um, the other thing that we're seeing is men. I mean, people think that women are, you know, more, prone to suicide or attempting and things like that. Now, women do attempt more than men, but men are dying by suicide four times more than women. Um, so we really need to focus on our men and in particular, our middle-aged men and see how we can help them get the help that they need. And um, another alarming trend that we're seeing right now is that the young black community, young young black males are having a very steep increase within the past two or three years. And 
when you look at that rate compared to other rates, you might still think, oh, well, that's so low, but the increase is shockingly steep. And so we do need to focus on our younger black males, um, particularly like late high school, kind of early 20s, college age um, males. So, um, you know, what's going on there? How can we address that? How can we help with, especially with the young black male population? I think that what we're seeing, what I've heard anecdotally from people in that community is increasing racial tension is a big contributing factor. I think that um, there's also less access to services, easier access to legal means and things like that. But I do think, I mean, the spike has happened within the last, I think I said two or three years. Um, and so I think that increasing racial tension, increasing political tension and things like that is contributing to this. Um, I'm not aware right off the bat of studies that have been done about that, but this is just what I've heard anecdotally from the black community. Um, so those are the, the, um, the big trends. The other one that I'll mention too, and this doesn't quite apply everywhere in Ohio, but there are several big cities in Ohio that have large populations of refugees. And a lot of those refugees are having problems adjusting to life in America, be that culturally, financially, whatever that is. And we're seeing, um, particularly at least in Columbus, the Bhutanese community, um, their rates are going up very high. And so, you know, how can we focus on our refugee community? The same blanket gatekeeper training isn't necessarily going to translate especially to refugees but let alone other people like what speaks to people in southeast ohio might not speak to the um same people in um like cleveland um people who are refugees are going to hear our messages and it'll sound different than maybe somebody who was raised in america their whole life so how do we get our prevention to fit those populations i think that's something that we need to think about and I think it's important to note that as a white woman, I can't directly speak to, you know, what's happening in the black community because I'm not of that community. But I do think that when you're talking about any group that you are not a part of, you need to go to the people that are part of that group and ask them what they need. Don't assume you know what they need. And I think one of the things that I hear a lot is um, like no representation about us without us. So I'm not going to sit here and speculate what might be the problem. I'm going to ask people, what are you seeing in your community? And um, so anecdotally, I can say that based on what I've heard. But um, I think that we need to talk more with people living in that community and also um, do some studies to find out exactly what's happening. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so... You talked about gatekeeper training. Um, for anyone who doesn't know about the different suicide prevention programs in the state, what are uh, what are some that are available to both youth, some that are available to adults, QPR, all that? Yeah, QPR is gonna be the first thing off my lips. So QPR is so hot right now, and mm -hmm. it, it stands for question, persuade, refer. It's just a very basic way to, you know, address suicide as the public health problem that it is, and then talk about how to talk to somebody who is suicidal and how to get them to the proper resources. So it's a really great basic training to do 
for anybody in the community. You don't have to have a degree or anything. It's just if you are in touch with people, you should take this training. Um, there are also other trainings that take a little bit longer. So QPR can be like one hour to two hours. Um, there are longer trainings like mental health first aid. There's a youth component. There's also an adult um, component. And it really breaks down not just suicide, but mental health in general and all of the different um, mental health issues that, that um, people struggle with. How to help somebody who might be in that moment of, um, you know, in the depths of their depression or in the middle of a psychotic episode. Like, what do you do in those moments? How do you get that person the help that they need? And so mental health first aid is a really good one as well. But the Signs of Suicide program is another one that we do. Um, and not, OSPF doesn't do it, but is across the state in various schools. Um, sometimes schools themselves are able to do it. Other times uh, outside organizations come in and do it for them. But it is um, a program that, again, teaches students how to act. The acronym is ACT. So how do you acknowledge that your friend is struggling? How do you show them that you care? And then how do you tell a trusted adult? And it really, um, it really drives that point home. It's kind of like QPR, but a little bit different. Mm -hmm. The best part about signs of suicide is that there's a screening component to it. And that screening component helps students to get identified as struggling with depression or suicide or not. And then those students are able to be seen by counselors um, and get the help that they need. So signs of suicide is a really great program. Uh, can people find more information about these programs on your website or should they go to the actual uh, curriculum websites? So Signs of Suicide right now, I would say um, to go to their website. If you look up Signs of Suicide school program on Google, you'll be able to find it very easily. Um, and then for QPR and for Mental Health First Aid, we have plenty of information on that on our website. Okay, perfect. I will add that to the resource page. Okay, um, so how can people get more involved in uh, suicide prevention that maybe aren't prevention specialists or in the field themselves? I think some of the best ways for people to get involved in suicide prevention, first is to educate yourself a little bit. I mean, you don't have to be a preventionist like Maddie was saying, but um, you know, look into responsible messaging. What does that look like? If you want to be the kind of person who shares your personal story publicly to help inspire people or help people, how can you do that in a responsible way? So there are ways to do that and there are ways to not do that. Um, but I also think that getting in contact with your local suicide prevention coalition is a huge first step. And through that, you can find um, information on all the coalitions on our website, we have a coalition tab, and if you drop down, you can look up all the coalitions in the state and find your coalition. Um, and if there's no information for your county on there, then you can look at your local Adam board or your mental health and recovery services board, and they should have the information on your local suicide prevention coalition. And then the other way, and this isn't commonly um, talked about, but there are like there are call centers all over the state, and Sometimes you can do things there on a volunteer basis. Sometimes they're hiring for people to work on those lines. But I know that some people, they want to do more than, um, you know, sit at a meeting and help with events and, um, you know, get flyers out to the community and things like that. They really want to talk to the people. So I would recommend looking into your local 
um, suicide prevention hotline and see if there's any kind of opportunity there for you to volunteer or to maybe even get hired. Okay. And of course, get trained in QPR. Yes. QPR is huge. Um, I think everybody should have to go through it. And just to get a reminder of it every once in a while is really healthy. I still need to remind myself of those steps when I talk to someone who's suicidal. So it's not something that always comes easy, but it's, it's a really great resource. It is. And then, you know, you're not asking people to sit for a few days through a course, um, 90 minutes to save a life. That's what we always say. Yeah. So uh, Kristen Smith is always offering uh, QPR trainings. And now um, the QPR Institute is now allowing virtual trainings during this time. So that's really exciting to, to talk about, too. Um, okay. Do you have anything else to, to add? I know we've covered quite a bit. We really did. Yeah. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Okay. All right. So now to end the show, um, with interviews, we always end with a fast five. So f uh, five fun questions for you to answer. And they have to be short and succinct. Don't just like, you know, talk your ear off, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, so uh, what is one fun fact about you that not many people know? that not many people know. I used to want to be a storm chaser and I still kind of do. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, that's Which crazy. Not very, I like science, but I can't really apply science. And so that's probably why I didn't go for it. Interesting. Um, if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? I always say disability, but people think that that's creepy. But I think that that's really, Sometimes. I would choose that. That's what I always say. Yeah, invisibility. And honestly, I don't know why, but invisibility. Sounds pretty cool. I think so, too. <laughs> I'm a Harry Potter fan, so maybe that's why. I've never seen Harry Potter. I'm not going to judge you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you could live anywhere in the world, um, where would you live? Oh, wow. Um, I don't know. I feel like I know this is kind of lame, but when I went to South Carolina, I just loved it. I felt like that was home for some reason. Being near the beach and the the trees and the all of those, what are they called? The you know the moss hanging off the trees. What are those trees called? Weeping willows. No, they're not weeping willows. They're di they're just like oak tree. Uh, something oak trees. Someone will know what I'm talking we'll, about. We'll find it. We'll find it anyway. <laughs> but those trees and. Being in the near the warm Atlantic Ocean, I think that'd be nice. But I'm just afraid of hurricanes. Oh so yeah. Then I'll, I'll say if I wanted to move somewhere like foreign, I would say either Ireland or Paris, France. Oh, I could go for Ireland. Oh, I, I want to go to Ireland so bad. My grandparents went there for their honeymoon. So I'm jealous. Yeah, me too. Um. So when are you the happiest? And that you can answer that both professionally and personally. Professional happiest when I'm with coalition people. Um, and that's just as simple as that. I just love the coalition. Um, so I'm happy a lot of the time at work because of that. At home, right now I'm happiest when I'm with my son and when he's just talking. I love seeing him grow and become his own little person and use sentences. And I'm just like, you're the smartest human being in the whole world. And <laughs> And so I get really happy when I'm around him. 
Oh, that's so cute. Um, what's his name? Jackson. Jackson. Oh, with a CK, not with an X. <laughs> As it should be, right? <laughs> well, it's, it's common spelling, but a lot of people are using the X now. Really? Yeah. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. Oh. Um, and now, last question. What are your Easter plans? I have a for my son, so we're going to, um, you know, he's going to have his little Easter basket, and I am seeing my mom sometimes still, um, and she has 16 acres, so we're probably going to, if it's nice, go there and put some eggs in the yard, and it'll be her, Jackson, and me, but still, and if we can't, then I'll probably just hide eggs around the house and have him do that, um, and my mom has chickens, so at the very least, I'll get free eggs and be able to do some like dip dyeing of eggs. <laughs> oh, that would be fun. I haven't done that in a long time. Now that I have a kid, like all those things are starting to come back. And so he's old enough, I think, that it would at least be fun for him. If he doesn't understand what it is, he'll still be happy to be doing something. But most of all, it's fun for you. Yeah, I just love it. Well, it was great talking to you. Thanks for setting aside a big chunk of your time today. I know we said a half hour, but you were just a wealth of knowledge. Yeah. I hope I we can do much. this again. No, you do not. No. Everyone, everyone loves you. We could all just sit down and listen to you talk all day. Thank you. Thank you I so much. I appreciate that. Yeah. You stay healthy. Have a great thank Easter. You. And uh, we will all talk soon, I'm sure. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bye. Michelle. Take care.